New writing new norm. Writing new, norm. Writing norm. new writing norm. You're listening to a podcast by New Writing Norm. norm. When we think of County Durham, we envision minor strikes and a Norman cathedral. St Cuthbert's Shrine with its headless statue, a post-industrial northern landscape and a world-leading university. It's steeped in history. But we don't tend to talk about County Durham in terms of its literary significance. I'm on a mission to prove that there's more to Durham than meets the eye that alongside its medieval city and worked out pits, the county is home to a rich and varied tradition of literature. Over the past few months, I've been seeking out the writers, books and poems that tell the story of County Durham's literary past and present. And in this podcast series, I'll be speaking to authors and poets who either hail from Durham or have made it their home. What does it mean, if anything, to be a Durham writer? What role has this place, unique in so many contradictory ways, played in shaping their work? Gillian Allnut has published nine major collections and was awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry in 2016. She was born in London but spent half of her childhood in Newcastle and settled permanently in Eshwinning in County Durham in the 1980s. Kayo Chingonyi is a poet, literary critic and essayist whose latest collection, Kumakanda, won the 2017 International Dylan Thomas Prize and a Somerset Maugham Award. He lives in Leeds and is an assistant professor of creative writing at Durham University. Like Gillian, he spent some of his childhood in Newcastle. Gillian and Kayo joined me to talk about their work and how their shared experience of leaving and then returning to the North East has influenced their poetry. I'm Laura McKenzie, and this is Writing Durham. I was born in Zambia, lived there until I was six. Moved to the UK when my mum was studying at this university. At Northumbria? Yeah, um, so everything's full circle, it seems like. That is funny, isn't it? But yeah, she was studying here, and it was intended to be like a, a course of study that she then left and came back to Zambia, but my... Well, it was a complicated situation in which my parents both broke up and then my dad died. So there was a need for her to come and, and find me and take me where, to, to where she was. And so that meant coming to Newcastle and living here for three, for three years, I think we did. Um, so I went to school here, made lots of friends and things like that, and very much associate this as a home place. And then after that, we moved because of my mum's work to London, but we would come back quite frequently in one way or another because of the friends and things that were made here. I used to have a pen pal <laughs> who uh, his family lived kind of near to Wall's End so we were in touch for some while after after that. And then I suppose I started to come, to come back to the place myself when I was at university. I went to university in Sheffield and trains were much cheaper then. <laughs> and one weekend I just took took myself to, to Newcastle and um, since then I've been coming back quite frequently for one reason or another so it's been one of the places that I spend quite a lot of time really and then with working in Durham it's been a kind of a completion of the circle somehow if such a thing is possible just because I've always been drawn to the northeast and like decided to go to Holy Island on holiday out of season one year because that was what I thought would be fun. What was that like? (laughs) 
it was very difficult to get across the causeway so that once we got across the causeway which was uh, you know the, half the battle it, I don't recommend it I don't recommend it we took a bus a long way and then we took another bus and waited between buses for about two hours uh, in the rain so I don't, I don't recommend it it sounds like a classic Northumbrian holiday actually yeah. <laughs> But once we made it, it was wonderful. And um, those residences are very, very rich whenever I'm in Durham because as a child, I spent lots of time there. And it kind of opens up the whole northeast, really. Once you move through that countryside, you start to enter a kind of different terrain and texture that continues all the way up to Scotland for me and is very rich and formative. So, yeah, I feel... I feel I'm back where I'm supposed to be somehow. Because you spent some of your childhood in Newcastle and now you are based in Eshwinning, which is in East Durham. Mm-hmm. When did you go back to Eshwinning and what brought you to that village in particular? What brought me to the village of Eshwinning was um, my declaring to various friends that I thought I'd like to buy a house I could afford and one in the country. And it was Jackie Litherland who said, How was it? Have you considered Eshwinning? <laughs> And one Sunday afternoon, I was living in Brantsworth Castle at the time, and I took my bicycle, I walked my bicycle over the ridge between um, Brantsworth and Eshwinning, and I walked about in the village of Eshwinning. I walked past the terrace where I have now lived for the last 25 years, um, and there was a for sale sign on my house, and I looked, and the voice in my head said, that's my house. And then I went back to Brantsworth. I forgot all about it. And a few days later, I was very depressed, just because I'm like that. And I thought, what can I do to get out of this depression? And I thought, oh, I'll go to the estate agents and ask the price of the house. So I did and um, took it from there. That's a good solution, I would say. <laughs> and everyone, everyone who came to my house who'd known before, who'd known me before, said, oh, this is your house. Mm. So it was, it was like that. It was meant to be. Mm. That's interesting. So it was a, it, that in itself felt a bit like a homecoming, I suppose. Yes, but when I, when I came back to the northeast from London in 1988, I never thought of it as a coming home or coming back. Um, although I had spent eight years of my childhood in Newcastle. But when I got back, I thought, well, of course it is. How could it not be? So you both feel there's an element of, like you say, the circle can never be really completed, but of coming full circle. Yeah, I think so. I think there's something, something some friends of mine have said in relation to having any kind of Scottish accent is that it's very prominent if you live in London and it disappears when you go back to whatever place that accent is from. And for me, like the Geordie accent that I had kind of dissipated, but the resonances of the accent were still there and I missed them without knowing it. And so there's a level of kind of feeling like a place accepts you or that you belong there when you hear the language spoken as you're you're used to it being spoken. And whenever I'm in any part of the Northeast, that particular texture is very, it just makes me feel calm. Um, in a in a way that London speaking doesn't. There is a richness to the different kinds of English in London, 
which I really love and I find a lot of um, a lot of power in it and also it's very inspirational to my work but I think without this part of the country there's a way in which some of the things I do in my poems wouldn't be possible. In what way? Could you elaborate on that? Um, I feel as if I came to the English language kind of um, from the outside rather than the in. So there were certain things that I would say or that I say now which are not necessarily how a native English speaker would phrase things because I was taught English in Zambia. Um, and when you're taught English in that way, it's very focused on getting things correct, I guess. Um, and I think learning English in a, in a more informal way, it's not about being correct so much as communicating well in a manner that's um, both illustrative, entertaining, uh, witty, yeah, uh, those kinds of things. So I think that all comes into play when you're, when you're trying to render something in poetry because you have to balance the different Englishes in your head in order to arrive at something compelling to someone else. Do you feel that the Northeastern accent or dialect has any, had any, has emerged in your work in any way or had any impact on? Well, when I lived here as a child in the 50s and 60s, um, you got a better job when you grew up if you talked um, BBC standard received pronunciation English. And to the extent that, um, as a as a joke at home in my family, we would go around around the table doing the alphabet A B C D. Mustn't say it F G because everybody said E, <laughs> and you didn't in London where we came from and where we would get good jobs. So, so so it was alien. Um, but I had I went to last suggest first and it was okay to talk like this. But then I passed the eleven plus and went to Rutherford and I had to have two languages, mm. a Geordie language for school and an ordinary language for home so it was it to me it was rather an alien mm -hmm. thing that I mustn't be drawn into and when we went back south to Dorking everyone at school thought I was Irish because what we had picked up was the lilt the sing-song which actually is lovely I think yeah no I've heard that before Ben Myers actually said exactly the same mm -hmm. thing when he moved to London everyone thought he was Irish yeah there's something I mean because I grew up in Northumberland and went to school in Newcastle and uh, I know when I call call centres now and people are specifically hired because of the Geordie accent or they're based in Newcastle and I'm always like oh e hiya <laughs> it comes up and it's just it's such a there is an element when you say comedy that's something warm and not humorous but just I don't know it's a nice feeling I think encompassed in an accent but then of course the Durham accents and the Southern accent and the Teesside accent and the um Geordie accent proper are all different. Mm. Geordie is much nicer than Durham. Durham has a flatness, I think. But I, when, I, when I first came back, I remember um, writing a poem that begins with the line, always I'd one leg longer than the other. And I thought, that I'd, that's Geordie. I must be turning into a Geordie. It, it, because it wasn't a word, it wasn't a dialect word. It was a, it was a, a grammatical construction, I suppose. Well, even the dialects, words are different throughout the region which I think is or apparently is to do with the old Norse or the Norse settlements being more concentrated in the south 
um, of the northeast. So in Teesside and West Northumberland, there's words like ket and beck, like ket for sweets, which I used to say when I was little, but we don't have those in Tyneside or it's more Scots, I think. Yeah, there is. I love the thing of calling a child a bairn. It just, there's a real um, tenderness around it, which I do use that for my nieces and nephews occasionally because of that tenderness that it carries for me. Um, And really it feels like the right word in some type of way. Um, And I know what you mean about that kind of slippage between different different ways of saying a thing and there is there might be one that you had when you were younger that you then lose and then you might hear it again and that feeling is kind of brought back again um yeah and the the kind of words that i learned in newcastle are really like that for me even when i when i hear someone who doesn't otherwise have that accent but then one of the words kind of is a tell that is a wonderful moment um of recognition for me I spent ages when I came back thinking, am I a southerner in the north or a northerner in the south? And then I went back to um, a college reunion in Cambridge and I opened my mouth and it came out right. Mm. And I thought, this is where I learned how to talk. It's very interesting hearing you... So the northeast of England is the bit of England you came to first. Mm. And and so it's home. It's yours. Yeah, I think so. Um... It's the place where the English language started to <clears throat> live uh, in the sense of being something uh, more slippery and less less textbook, I suppose. Yes. Um, yeah, and that living quality is what makes me want to write, really. So, yeah, there is a strong sense of, of belonging to to the place that comes from from living here first, I think. Yes, because for me it was the second place I lived. And and we were strangers. And in in the 1950s, 300 miles was 10 hours in the car, six hours on the train. It was another country, really. And the class distinctions were so strong. And even when I came back in 1988, it took me three months to understand what was so different from the South and from London. And it was that that class was still really important. More important up here or down? Up here, up here. yes. Um, in my terrace, we were involved in fighting several planning applications, and I found the planning committee meetings at Durham City Council absolutely fascinating because the councillors were from the inner city, middle-aged, middle-class women, and from the villages, they were old, working-class men. And just the mixture and the conversation, you know, the exchanges that happened was riveting. The mix in Durham as well, I know there is that tension obviously between the university uh, and the town proper, which isn't always a positive one. And then we have the kind of the heritage, world heritage site versus the pits. Um, I know, so there's a lot going on. The prison also. And the prison, yeah. But the people love the cathedral. Yes. And that is wonderful. I think that seems to be a complete consensus. And I love the way the gala, even though it's only a a heritage thing now, and I just caught it when it was still real when I moved there. Um, That's so extraordinary that it's the procession with the brass bands followed by the political rally, followed by the service in the cathedral. 
And I went once to the whole thing and it was Arthur Scargill giving the sermon and it was quite amazing. But the gala as well, like you say, is something different now. But I was thinking about Kumakanda and initiation and I was thinking what initiations are particular to this place. And I was thinking about going to my first gala and that being something just, I don't know, entering into a completely new space and new experience and it being a very Durham, you know, this is the Durham thing you've been initiated into. And then I was reading about the... Um, Bevan boys, the um, the miners who got conscripted during the Second World War to not to fight, they'd all been trained to be pilots or servicemen, and they ended up. I think they just literally picked names out of a hat, and they had to stay and work in the mines. Um, and they called the first um, descent they took into the mine of the lift the initiation drop, because all the established miners would make it. Um, I think it was meant to be thirty feet a second and it would be 70 feet a second just to initiate them into that experience. Durham is a wonderful space of initiation to the northeast in in relation to its landscape on the one hand but also you have to if you step off the train you really have to enter into the dynamics of the place (laughs) it kind of takes over your it's not been made easy for you to to like get down into the down down the hill and everything else and i think about the way stations are designed now um that is very accommodating and i really love that in order to properly experience it there's a you begin by looking around at, at what's there and it's a similar thing with newcastle with the massive bridge but i think that starting with looking is really useful because you get a sense of the scope of the place, um, of what it looks like, and then you enter into its atmosphere. And I really have always loved that about Durham. That walk from the station to the station from work is one of my favourite kind of parts of my day, really, because there's a sense in which I, I bump into the other aspects of Durham life by, by having to go that way. There is no neat way that I can do it. There's no way I can really... Um, have a shortcut from it and I think that's yeah that's an important part of entering into this part of the country too because of Durham's history it's so old (laughs) like there's no it's nowhere quite quite that has this this much history in such a small space because you worked at the university for a period of time as well didn't you Mm -hmm. yes I must say I felt not having been part of the university for most of the time I've been mm-hmm. on the edge of Durham and, and Durham being my, my city. Um, at the time when I was working at the university, I felt I could swan about Durham in a way <laughs> that I didn't before and haven't since. It lends a kind of comical assurance to your activities to in any way mention an affiliation or connection to the university to somebody from Durham or even from Newcastle. I've been in a couple of taxis where they've asked me what I do and then we've had the long conversation and then um, and then they might ask me what, why it is I'm going to the university and then finally we like get to talking about it. Um, and there's always this perception of it as being this like posh, rarefied place, which is very funny. Um, I think you can, yeah, there's there's a way in which you can kind of run with that in a way because of that prestige, mystery, whatever that it, that it carries. 
which I don't think is quite the same with the universities in this city, um, perhaps because of that age and history um, as well. I think the collegiate system as well mm. plays yes. into that. Whereas I, in my village, I'm always trying to play down that side of my life. Mm. Um, but I, but I, I have to say, when I got the new um, the Northern Rock Foundation Writers Award in 2005 and, uh, and got... Uh, put on the news, on the local news, a lot. And the mo one of the most endearing, wonderful things was that the village was so pleased because Ashwinning gets a pretty bad, bad press on the whole as, a, as an old pit village. Um, and, and I became the village's pet poet. And, and because I'd said in various interviews I didn't have a washing machine because I like washing by hand and it helped me to write my poems, which is absolutely true. I, for years afterwards, I, I was asked in the street, have you still not got a washing machine? <laughs> and have you still not got one? <laughs> well, actually, I've now got one, which I relieved a friend of, and I still haven't had, I've had it since January and not got it plumbed in yet, but um, oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> And that was that was just so that really touched me that people were so pleased. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, I hadn't expected it at all. Because you've got a couple of poems about Eshwinning. Mm -hmm. So I I wrote this um, soon after I'd moved into my house in Eshwinning um, at the end of 1993, and this was my first summer, and the garden was a bit of a jungle, um, and I wanted to be out in it during in the evenings but it was a very cold summer and um, I did a great deal of digging in order to be outside in the long light evenings and keep warm and at the time I was I was thinking about my family and particularly about my grandmother um, my mother's brother was killed during the second world war he was a navigator in a Lancaster bomber and killed on when the plane was coming back from an air raid over Pilsen in the Czech Republic and the plane was shot down over France and the whole crew were killed and my grandmother apparently my grandmother sat up in bed in the middle of the night and said something's happened to John and then after that she sat for three weeks in her chair in a sort of catatonic fit this is just what my mother told me but it was really a terrible thing so I'm I'm thinking about her the garden in Eshwinning. Go then into the unfabricated dark with your four bare crooked tines, fork, and get my grandmother out of that muddle of dock and dandelion root and put an end to neglect while the wind says only esh, esh in the late apple blossom, in the ash, and all the hills rush down to Durham where the petulant Prince Bishops dream in purple vaults. It's not the earth's fault, Fork, but mine, that I, for forty years of days and nights, invented dragons to guard my grandmother's bare arthritic bones from my own finding. Now, of all things, I imagine a garden laid over and dumb as a disused coal mine. In the north, there are no Sally Gardens, no, nor bits of willow pattern plate to plead for me. No, only bones unmourned, the memory of the memory of a plane shot down and its discoloration. Who now humbly brings me my grandmother in pieces 
like Osiris, fork. Who eases out old sorrel gone to seed, old scallions? Who pulls the purple columbines out of the not-quite-dark midsummer midnight? In the north, the sky is green. The long grass, partly shorn, lies down like a lion, and something's happened to John. And in this valley of discoloured bones, Ezekiel lies open to the wind, the fork work done. The Bible, propped like an elbow on the ironing board within the house, is full of visions, Gran, of what we are, were, always might have been. I was thinking in relation to your work about how there's a lot of space um, for readers or for interpretation. Um, it seems to me very dynamically engaged in conversation. And also, it's a kind of invitation as well. I find that particularly moving in the context of a remembrance like that poem carries. Um, yeah, I just wondered about how you balance those impulses, the impulse to to remember and memorialize with the impulse to communicate and include somebody for whom that memory um, is not readily accessible, but somebody who needs more information in order to, to feel about that memory, what you do. I mean, I hope that the, the feeling that, that I have um, put into the poem, not deliberately, but that, that is in the poem, is the direct link with another person. So it's feeling to feeling communication and um, and then the details hopefully don't matter that much. I was I was thinking thinking about your work, and I mean there's a couple of poems in Kumakanda that I really like. One is a love poem. Un is it under cover of dark? Oh, uh, in defence of in, darkness. In, mm. Sorry. No, yes. that's fine. Um, cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> I like under cover uh, of dark. Uh, well, it's playfulness. I, I remembered it in that yeah. way. It wasn't deliberate. <laughs> it's because I don't want to I shuffle about trying to find it. But mm. um, I hope you might read that one, and, and also the last one, the very little short one that ends the book. Oh yes, I know the one you mean. About being an orphan. Mm, for those orphaned late in life. Yes. Yeah. Um, that one. When when I got to that one, I thought there's a poet here. I mean, you know, not that I dismiss the rest of the book. I love your book. Mm. Um, but it was that poem, because I couldn't explicate it to myself. I could not put into words what I think so amazing about it. It made the hair on the back of my neck stand mm. up. Um, Thank you. Yes. I, I was thinking exactly, uh, I'll tell you in a minute, your third verse, coconut oil, laundry detergent, sweat, dry shampoo, Burberry weekend, garam masala tang in the troublesome hair inherited by our possible daughter. And I thought, that's an amazing list of ordinary scents and smells. And, and they earth this poem for me. They make it part of the real, the everyday, the ordinary in the best sense. And yet, they're not my details. I haven't, um, I, I haven't much idea what, what some of these things are, and I certainly can't smell them, but that absolutely doesn't matter. What I do is replace them, probably not consciously, but I know I can replace these smells with similar s smells of my own, and, um, and it really doesn't matter that the details are so different because 
they're the same in essence. So when you're working, it's kind of leaving enough space for somebody to do that, to place over your words their own kind of experience or association or to hold up the thing that is for them um, equivalent to what you've written. Yes, or to be put unconsciously in touch, I think, so that it's their own world, their own experience, their own being that they bring to, to the poem to make it meaningful. But, it, but it's not at all, obviously, it's not at all a conscious process. I think if it were conscious, it would be too... Well, it would move into being manipulative, I suppose. And I think those attempts to be such in a poem are readily obvious to the reader and also probably to the author too. But Borges said that all literature is tricks in a gesture towards the idea that it's different layers of technique and... I don't know, with a poem, in, in a sense, the propositional content is very simple in one way, which is, I remember this thing, it makes me feel X. Um, or, um, this thing is important to me and I'm trying to make it important to you, or at least I'm trying to make you think about the importance of it. Um, but I think when you layer, layer certain complications and, and considerations on top of those simple impulses that's when something interesting happens in the space of the poem and I think if I can detect too easily the intention behind a poem then I begin to distrust it whereas whereas when I'm made to feel something by the different layers that have been put in place then then I can't detect what the intention was but I can I can see by all those layers by that effort by that process that somebody has cared about something and so maybe I'll care about it as well um yeah I don't know I think poets have been distrusted <laughs> uh by by a range of people and I'm not sure that they're especially trusted <laughs> trusted in a widespread way now but um yeah I think moving moving away from that from from feeling too strongly one's influence on an audience or a reader and moving into a space in which you're in communication or communion I think is more I don't know it's less ethically dubious I suppose because um, there's lots of linguistic manipulation going on in our lives already without adding to it so very true yeah so I try not to as best as I can but that's really interesting I think I, th I think I think in the end the key to it is to be able to allow yourself to be vulnerable and to cut out cleverness. I've so many times in the course of writing a poem had to overcome the temptation to be clever because it's never the best, never the best thing in the end. You have to sacrifice, I have to sacrifice the cleverness. And that is often to do with a particular kind of cleverness also which is performative, and some forms of intellect really disappear. Some forms of intellect are really about giving a space to someone else for a long period of time, and that takes enormous capacity and energy and understanding, which isn't as celebrated because of the ways in which it effaces the self. But I know what you mean about um, a mode of writing which is clever for its own sake or in that kind of performance of cleverness which after you're impressed by that technical 
whatever that the poem has that there's not often anything else there which is yeah which is the shame of that kind of writing um because it never truly it can never truly illustrate the thing that you're trying to demonstrate anyway um so yeah i feel it yeah better to to try and go for the vulnerability hard though it is <laughs> but i think it's mysterious as well um i don't think i'm ever quite sure how much any other person will get from a poem but the the title poem of wake this a tiny little four or five line thing at the end um i put it in a pamphlet first and because three people picked it out and said i really like that one and i thought this is totally incomprehensible it was a sort of accumulation of four o'clock in the morning experiences and coming to terms with things and i thought that it was totally obscure but clearly the emotional psychic spiritual energy that went into those or came out of those experiences i suppose must have gone into the poem so that that didn't matter about the references being totally personal hmm. if that makes any sense i think it does yeah um would you be open to reading that particular poem from I could read that, that one thank you i'll just read the poem without any any kind of um, introduction it's it's dedicated for my father myself wake solitude laid down as bedrock being sweet chariot sweet clarinet of bone where late the sweet bird sang i think also i mean going going through these three books yesterday i i i became i became aware of the through threads in my work i suppose and um and how not surprisingly i guess the poems do grow out of each other and build on each other so there's a whole hinterland behind the images in that little four line thing um which i suppose an acquaintance with my earlier work would would help reader to to see but i hope that's not necessary where do you feel that hinterland lies both in your work like at what point but also is that a more is that something that's more ephemeral this sense of hinterland and an emotional space yes there's there's a a wonderful essay by Kieran Carson in um it was a a book of um contemporary poets strong words it's called published by bloodax contemporary poets thinking about critically about poetry and and it i i love etymology and i spend a lot of time when i'm writing poems looking up words in the dictionary to make sure i really know what they mean but then i find the historical layers i've got a shorter oed um of of those words and often i'll i'll think can i use this word in this way and i'll look it up and it might be an obsolete meaning or it might be early 17th century and i'll think how far can i push this but that that's what i mean about the hinterland of a word all all the history that it brings with it the shadows of earlier ways of using it and i think also i mean it's, it's it seems like a completely obvious idea but the older you get the more sense of history you have i think and i remember i mean i love working i love working primary schools and especially with year 3 7 year olds 
and because they just love playing with words. And um, but they have, but I did a project in Hexham with the school that's right next door to the Abbey, mm -hmm. and we were doing the Anglo-Saxons, who I also love, and I was trying to do a bit of timeline stuff, and I've done this in other schools as well to try and get them to to put what we're talking about in roughly the right place on the historical timeline. And, they're, and they're, those kids and, and other kids, they're just completely all over the place. They know, I mean, there's maybe the Romans, 1066, the Victorians, but absolutely no idea about what order things come in. And so I really thought about that, and I thought, well, of course, to have a sense of history, you've got to have some history yourself, I think. Yeah. And and I thought, I mean, when I put Wake together, I thought, ah, oh, there's a lot more history in my, the way I write about landscape. But that's probably an aspect of the same, same thing, that um, being so old now. How much has that particular landscape of Eshwining, of County Durham, played into your work? I think it, it's um, the landscape mediated through Christian history, mm. through Christianity, really. Um, and I mean, I'm, I, I don't think of myself as a Christian, a practicing Christian, but I got such a hefty dose of it as a child. And I grew up in the Church of England and, and we went to church every Sunday and um, my dad grew up in the Baptist chapel. And then I went to La Jess and got a dose of Catholicism. And, um, and, and so there was all that, but there was also, my mother was, um, she was a good person, my mum, and she was a Christian. And I've, and I've come to feel that part of her gift to me since she died um, is, is Christianity mm -hmm. and, and my sort of abiding interest in it. And, and the poems are just kind of made of it. There's so much of, it, of its imagery. So, mm -hmm. that, so the landscape of, of County Durham, I suppose, um, and, and Northumberland um, is mediated through that early Christian history. Yes. Like Holy Island, mm. your <laughs> your wild holiday. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of early <clears throat> Christian history to be found in these parts, I suppose. Um, and certain, I guess, the other thing is um, there aren't main, many formal places of pilgrimage, but there are many... Um, sites of like significant interest to Christianity all over the place and I think if you go into the depth of it there's just there's such a richness um, both of that kind of historical information but also documents and writing and an engagement with that history as well um, I was wondering about this idea of a hinterland actually in relation to your your word choices your, your use of quite short lines and indeed short poems. Um, it, feels, it feels very much that that particular way of working, um, it feels very related to this kind of landscape for me because it's not a very densely populated landscape. And so what you do see has a kind of extra pressure around it somehow in the way that uh, one word uh, in a short poem has more kind of emphasis somehow. Um, and tracing that movement across your work, it seems like that's an abiding interest. 
um, that you have in relation to language. What weight can one word carry that I could do away with the entire sentence that used to be here and just say one word and, and encapsulate something maybe a bit more mysterious, but more powerful somehow for being brief. Thank you for saying that. I, sh- I shall think about that. It, it, it's interesting because I, I think, oh, don't ask me how I do it because I have no idea. Mm. But sometimes, sometimes a word will come into my ken, a word I've, I've known all my life, but suddenly it lights up. Mm. And it, 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 it's a kind of numinosity, I suppose. Um, so maybe that's something to do with it. I recognise that feeling that you're talking about, which is, for some reason, the way someone says a phrase or something um, just makes that phrase almost strange again. Yes. Um, Yeah, and the process of writing becomes about reckoning with that new strangeness uh, and where that has come from or why that focus has shifted in that way. Um, So is it something that... um, Is it something that you're attentive to and you note down in something like a notebook or is it something that you remember and um, go back to when you're writing or is the process of writing less um, less specific to one moment and a kind of continuous process for you gosh <laughs> um, I think when I when I got the Northern Rock Award I gave up all my teaching because they ask you to give up a bit of your work so other poets can have the money um, but being me I decided I'd experiment with giving it all up and uh, and then because I most of my poems had started in creative writing workshops and classes um, I was bereft of that um, so I had to think how do I write now and it, it became a completely different process and one much harder to pin down I sort of it attached itself the writing attached itself not to teaching anymore but to meditation so that's clearly a lot more a lot more a lot less earthed than than teaching and um, and it became instead of being a red hot process it became a cold white process and it also had to do um, 20 years ago I gave up smoking and I used to hammer away at a poem until it was done, even if it took seven, eight, nine hours, and then kind of look at the clock and think, how can it be that late and I'm starving? And, um, but now, without smoking to sustain me, I can't do that. So I, I, I'll do a draft and then come back after a few days and do another draft. And I, have to, I find I have to retrace my steps to where I was. But um, So actually, I, don't, I have no idea how to describe the writing process, but I don't, I don't keep notebooks. I mean, I might throw something down in the back of my diary if I'm on a bus and it comes. But, but then pretty soon afterwards, it's almost like I hold my breath until I can write it properly. I think that's the test of an idea, is if it can survive whatever is keeping you from writing it up into something, then it's probably interesting <laughs> that's what I like to tell myself to make up for the times that I've forgotten the the wonderful line that would create the poem of poems that I've never written <laughs> <laughs> so do, do you have a a, a a sort of fixed way of, of working that you could describe as the way I write no 
No, but I do think there are there is a through line in all of the writing that I do, whether it be in prose or writing a song or writing a poem. And the through line is that the best way for it to happen is if something comes in, comes into mind that I don't understand or I'm mystified by in some kind of way. Um, I think my best work comes out of that surprise and discovery. Um, but sometimes I do write things in response to a brief or commission or that kind of thing. And because of the specificity of that brief, I'm forced to be playful in ways that I'm not ordinarily to make it interesting for myself. Um, so something arises out of that tension, which I also like. But I think the best work that I do as far as feeling integrated and making something that isn't just about impressing anyone or anything like that is probably where I have to discover I have to discover where this line that has come into my head comes from and what is the context um, or invent that context um, so yeah that's that's really the that's the thing that always comes back in the process but the process is very different <laughs> depending on what I'm doing and I travel a lot so Lots of it is not at a lovely desk in a quiet room, but it's uh, in the midst of people going to Edinburgh Festival or things like that. All of these kind of noises of the world are very much uh, a part of my writing environment quite often. I think the thing about it that I really like is that is that you get the different, slightly different uh, textures of speech as you travel along, because from Leeds, even to York, there is a world of difference uh, between Outlook and then when you cross from Yorkshire into the Northeast, mm -hmm. it changes again. So, yeah, I think I've picked up something from it, but I don't know what that is yet. And I don't know how it's coming out in writing, but I'm sure that it is. Um, yeah, because it is a lot of stimulus so I think that there must be something I'm picking up from it I really love that um, Radio 4 the listening project oh have, yes have I love that yeah I love those conversations yeah. and I've, I've been absolutely inspired by those in fact mm -hmm. um, I, this this book I've been putting together in connection with the hearing the voice project at Durham um, and it's got conversations and it's got my own poems in it and i run workshops um, and with exercises that would enable me to write a poem that has something to do with voice. So I've been thinking a lot about voice and conversation. But I know that that series, of which I haven't heard that many, but it's magic somehow. There's something really numinous, something magical about that and, and something I want to put my finger on. And, and so it's really fed a lot into this mm -hmm. voice-hearing book. Would you like to read Convent Girl? Convent Girl They wearied me with prayer In the darkening garden of the Dean I stared I sought him where the way was unprepared A wild rose The old road with its white line Will not come again Nor my heart with its old-fashioned indicators But my riven father Who knows 
Riven feels like a very powerful word and also feels quite northern to me. I don't know why. I don't think there's any accuracy in that. <laughs> but it feels like a northern word. There's something in the King James Bible in the account, one of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion and the veil was riven, mm. I think, at the point where Christ dies. It is really powerful. Yeah. Um, and my father, my father was in a flame-throwing tank regiment in the war mm. and, and that was a horrible thing to, to be involved in. And also they were sent in to help burn down Belson after the camp had been cleared. And those things, particularly Belson, he never talked about. And so in a way, that, that's where the riven comes from, I think. There was that part of him that had experienced all that and the rest of him. And when I, when I worked with asylum seekers in the Northeast in the last 10 years, and I had the experience of getting emotionally very close to, to some of the people that I worked with, and, and then realizing that actually I didn't really know anything of the stories, their stories, the appalling experiences that they'd been through because they didn't talk about them and I didn't ask. Um, but nevertheless, we were very close and I thought, how can this be? And then I understood that, it, I think, because I'd grown up with my father and he hadn't talked about all these things that he'd been through. And I understood further, I think, that he needed us, my, myself and my sisters, not to know. He needed us not to know about it so that, in a sense, he could imagine that it hadn't happened, I think. It's, it's complicated, but... Yeah. Um, it, I mean, all that's in the poem, but I was a long way before this understanding I have now when I wrote this poem, so it was much less conscious. Mm. It was unconscious in me, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. There is, I think, a lot of... Um, a lot of information that we don't have about those people that we love. Um, and we know them at one level but there are different levels of knowing and know is a very uh, very broad word in that poem I think um, it's very expansive um, but I think some somehow the mystery in a poem the mystery in a poem can access that that kind of ambiguity in in knowing someone there is there are so many interior worlds some of which somebody might not connect with as a kind of conscious defense mm. and some of which might just be by some unconscious process suppressed entirely until they're enlivened by the right um, resonance or yes. stimulus or something like that um, but yes I, I know what you mean about um, working with groups of asylum seekers or um, refugees, migrants, people whose experiences that I don't ask about, but which somehow um, poetry even about other subjects touches on or accesses in ways that I don't understand. And I find that powerful because my responses to certain traumas has, has been to write things which people do not associate with those tra traumas directly, but which for me will always mean... Um, what they mean and there's um 
There's something very freeing about a form of language which allows for that ambiguity um, and mystery, and in which people accept mystery as part of the whole thing. Did writing these poems help you know your father better? Yes. And in fact, I think my mother died in 2004 and my father in 2006. And I, my, my mother is settled now. Things are settled between her and me, but my father is still going on. Yes, so it, it's still falling, in, falling into place, hopefully, eventually it will. It's a long journey with him. We, we, had, we had a difficult relationship, so. Could we have one from Kaya? Yes. <laughs> I think a short poem is a way of trying to carry a thought or some thoughts across to someone else very simply and clearly. Um, and, and so the process of making it is almost a kind of direct, this is it, here, have it kind of process. Whereas with a longer poem, it builds up over such a long period of time, for me at least, that it gets into my mind that way. Whereas this poem is one of the last poems that was written for the book. And um, as soon as it was in the right form, that was it. It was done. Um, which, yeah, for some of the other poems, I thought they were in the right form and they weren't done. And mm -hmm. it, so it's more of a process of accretion. Yeah. And I think if you're communica communicating simply and trying to, yeah, trying to disappear as in this poem, then something, yeah, it's harder to remember somehow. For those orphaned late in life, what if the wind blowing through the French doors of your childhood is the house's way of saying goodbye? And when you call out, answering yourself, greeting the gone out of habit, you hear for the first time the timbre of your voice, how someone else might. That's a, that's a fantastic poem. It's so mysterious, and yet not mysterious. I mean, my, my part of me, my deeper part, my intuition, I suppose, goes, absolutely, fantastic, amazing. What's that about? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a question as well, the last part, which I, I love doing that, but you're not supposed to too often. And I had to cut some question endings from the book, which I think was good advice from my editor, because um, there were a number of endings on a question. But um, yeah, I think mystery is important in poems sometimes especially in relation to an experience that I haven't had, um, which is partly what the poem is about. It is a gift for um, those orphaned late in life. It's really just that. Um, it was my attempt to make something for them um, and get into their perspective somehow. Because you were orphaned so early in life. Comparatively speaking, yeah, but... You know, I sometimes think that a formative experience of that kind of grief is, if not necessarily auspicious or good or lucky or anything, it's kind of um, 
It allows space and time for another version of events, another reality to become real and to be celebrated. I've had like a lot of time to to come to terms with it, understand it, and feel the way I feel about it in a way that's integrated. Whereas I think for people whose parents have been alive for most of their lives and as they get into their 50s and 60s if they still have their parents around then there is that feeling oh you know this person had a good innings and whatever else but I think there is something about losing someone at that stage which isn't reflected on too much which is that if you have someone for so long that still doesn't mean you've exhausted the possibilities of what that person can mean to you of what you can learn from that person of how you can turn to that person um I see people whose parents are eighty are in their eighties, in their nineties, and they still turn to them in moments of distress or confusion or you know. Um and it used to frustrate me when the kind of parental people in my life said you'll always be a kid to me, but I, I kind of understand it without having my own kids now, what that what that is, what that means. And whether that child is ten or sixty or seventy, you you can always feel that feeling about them. Um, and that feeling is reciprocal, I think, or it can be, at least, um, in relation to the parent and what they represent. There's an unreality about a parent. There's a kind of... Yeah, they're, they're almost like a, a character that you create in your mind until such time as you let them be something else. Um, yeah. And when and when they die, you you are you are bereaved of the daughter or the son that you yourself were. Mm. Yes, exactly. I f- I feel as if that reciprocal communication is is a powerful way in which lots of us feel ourselves. Um, I'm I'm very I'm very moved by cultures in which one is named after a par- a parent in terms of your surname or whatever else, but also. You might move through a certain community and someone might say, oh, that's such and such is son. And that kind of thing is very important as well in terms of how you f- feel yourself. But um, yeah, there, there's a lot of self-fashioning which happens in relation to someone else. And that person's usually a parent. No, well, I was orphaned relatively late in life, so that's a gift to me as well. <laughs> I was wondering just about the specific idea of um, of exile in relation to the Northeast, and it seems as if it's taken you a long time to feel, while you do feel at home here on some instinctive level because of that early experience of the Northeast, it's taken you a long time to reconcile that feeling and to somehow accept it as it were because because your writing sometimes draws you to writing about other places um and so um yeah i wonder about um this fee this sense of exile that you talk about in relation to the northeast and your the time that you've spent here and also your experience of it maybe as it began in the 50s and as it's kind of shifted I think it, in the end, has to do with the fact that from almost from the very beginning of my life, I banished part of myself and 
when I was doing psychotherapy, I um, responded to a request from the therapist to to remember very early experiences, and I said, I can't. And so she said, imagine them. And I found myself writing a story about having sent myself to a planet called Banesh, and, and how actually the planet was stationary, but when I started to, to work on it all, it spun again, it started to spin. And I, and I think that's been a really, really long journey to um, recall that part of myself that I banished into exile. And I think for a long time before I worked with asylum seekers, I wanted to, and there seemed no way to somehow to, to make contact. But then when I did, I was really privileged because I had a writing residency. So I could use the most central part of myself to, to work with those people. And I, and I realized quite early in the project um, that my, my part of my, my gripping interest was um, that I wanted to recall the asylum seeker in myself. So I think, in a way, I've needed to live in exile um, because, in fact, I always have. When I was seven and we moved to the northeast, I was exiled from my grandmother, who was more a mother than my mother, I think, and, and from my parents have both grown up in southeast London and their families were there. I think in some ways they wanted to get away from their families, um, but in so many ways it, it, it was an exile, um, yes. But, but I also think, I mean, I've come to feel, uh, um, because also I, I sort of, I think a lot on a, on a spiritual level, and I think I am in this world, but not of it. And in a way, I've needed to reproduce that all my life, to be in a place, although I'm not of it. Yeah. <sighs> Things have so many layers. <laughs> I feel that being not of a place is very fruitful to writing and I find it in common with a number of writers that either it's a kind of mental restlessness which means that they create places that don't exist if you want to say it that way but then do exist in the sense that the mind is its own reality and then there might be a restlessness which is that they journey to different places and draw inspiration from different places or they live in a place but also keep a certain distance as well or keep a fluid motion in in relation to their belonging to a place both belonging and unbelonging at the same time I suppose yeah and maybe that tension is part of what makes it possible to write about a place because I think if you're ideally situated in life you wouldn't make a career of writing perhaps maybe you'd write the occasional thing but I feel there is a longing that's somehow woven into the writing process and if you write about place maybe that longing is about trying to rediscover a place that you can't access anymore or kind of memorialize or celebrate or imagine a place also yeah I very rarely write about places that I'm in at that immediate moment until I'm removed in some way for a period of time so have you been back to Zambia very much not much I have been and I'm intending to go again but yeah my relationship to it is is very much one of one of trying to rediscover and discover as much as I can at this point. I think most, most of, for most of my life, it seemed, it seemed to return to the idea of exile somewhere that I couldn't or wouldn't return. Um, and now that return is more possible. There is a sense in which it's uh, fractional or conditional. 
And so I cannot live there in the way that I am now. I would have to change my life into something different and be a different person almost. Um, so, yeah, the physical return is only part of it, I think. There is a kind of spiritual dimension to returning there, which I haven't yet reconciled. I haven't found a way to be every version of myself at one time and place. Because <laughs> that, in a way, is what you're doing in Kumukanda, writing about the UK equivalent of initiation. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, lots of initiations are experienced in the, in the Northeast or in the UK, in London, in various places I've lived aren't recorded in the book, but certainly it's a book mm. that kind of tries to explore those things. Um, yeah, being in heavy snowfall, <laughs> the tall ships, uh, shields, all of it is in there somehow. The songs as well, because slightly different to London schools and primary schools around here, you learn so many, so many kind of songs uh, that have to do with um, the history. Um, and I'm sure you do in London schools to a certain extent, but I suppose I'm thinking about like Bobby Shafto and those kind of, those folk. Yes. We all um, need the key Musical role. songs, exactly. Yeah, that was our school yeah. song. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, I think, I think those kind of initiations are very much in my work and probably will always be because mm -hmm. um, they brought me into the English language as kind of a, a living thing, um, mm -hmm. a mutating thing. Because there's quite... Um, a significant intersection in your work, I think, between poetry and music and those two worlds. Mm. And so do you think that folk tradition, being introduced to that folk tradition, has played a part in how you're thinking about music and rhythm and rhyme as well? I think so. I think I think I aspire to creating the kinds of kinds of writing that are, are memorable in that kind of way whereby whereby the author can disappear but the work retains a kind of strength or some kind of compelling element um, yeah I think I, I've noticed one or two poets like using an image or a phrase or some kind of thing which um, which they've picked up from reading like one of the poems or because I've been working with that poet and they've maybe been looking at my work at that time. Um, and within hip hop, which is one of my main musical influences, there is a, a kind of long history of borrowings and cross pollinations. And my writing style as a poet is very, it's heavily borrowed from other writers. And to see that process continue, not just for me, but for other writers of my age that are publishing and then um, uh, and then sort of giving other people permission to work within that vein and then they take that thing and run with it in their own direction. I'm really moved by that. Um, and that's something that those kind of folk lyrics do as well. They provide a kind of framework for people to then 
improvise more on top of. Um, and I'd like for my work to do that. Um, yeah, because then, then it becomes more communal uh, in, in terms of other writers as well as readers and everything else. Um, yeah. And on that note, thank you very much, Caio. Thank you, Gillian. It's been an thank absolute you. joy. Thank you. That was <laughs> a wide-ranging, wonderful conversation. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> you must be knackered. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Writing Durham. This podcast was supported by Durham University as part of a wider project on Durham's literary heritage, which has been funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Next time, I'll be joined by author Mim Skinner, who lives in Durham City, and will be talking about her debut book, Jailbirds, Lessons from a Women's Prison.